0: We have a chance now uh, to read God's Word, and our sermon text this morning is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you have a Bible you can turn there, it's also printed for you in your bulletin, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 1-17, through so a, a good portion. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you may be united in the same mind, and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this, that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, who is Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Don't you love that? Paul's, like, train of thought. He almost forgot somebody, okay? He doesn't want to offend them. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you again that you are the God who speaks, that you are the God who has spoken to us through your scripture. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would give us the ears to hear, that you would open our hearts to receive instruction, encouragement, even perhaps conviction where we need it. And Lord, we pray that you would ultimately make us people who are not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you might recall the iconic uh, 1989 movie, The Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams. It starred uh, Kevin Costner as Ray, who was a newfound farmer in Iowa. And if you might uh, recall, after several years of working the land, he starts to hear this voice. He hears this strange voice as he's out in his cornfields that says, if you build it, he will come. It's more of a whisper, but I don't want to make it creepy, okay? It's, if you build it, he will come and what the voice was referencing was this call for Ray to to build this baseball diamond in the middle of nowhere in the middle of his cornfields in Iowa and so against all odds and against all criticism and against all charges of lunacy he actually builds this beautiful baseball diamond in the middle of his cornfields and as the movie unfolds, these ghosts of sort of former baseball glory begin to show up and and play games. And ultimately, spoiler alert, the movie's been out like 30 years, okay, so you have no excuse. Uh, What happens is his father eventually comes, his father who he was sort of estranged from and who he missed playing catch with. uh, His father comes and plays in the field and they have this your reconnection. It's a beautiful movie. It's a wonderful movie. Uh, but one, one point in the movie, as these people are coming to play in the field, there's this refrain that keeps occurring where they take in the sights, they take in the sounds, they look at the beautiful grass, they're, they're glad to be back playing, and they ask Ray, is this heaven? They look around and they say, is this heaven? And Ray always chuckles and says, no, it's Iowa. It's Iowa. I bring that up because if your experience is anything like mine, the question, is this heaven, is not necessarily a question we always get in the church. People come in, they look around, and they don't always ask, is this heaven? Because though the church and communities of of Christians are called to be what one author calls colonies of heaven here on earth, Unfortunately, sometimes it's the opposite. Unfortunately, sometimes it's the opposite. That churches are frequently filled with fighting and and bitterness, grudges, self-serving agendas and division. That churches are often filled with apathy and indifference and sometimes even scandal of the most sordid kind. And so, Though Kevin Costner's character has asked the question, is this heaven? We don't always get that question in the church because, quite frankly, a lot of people would never confuse the two. And so that's exactly why I wanted to take a moment, or take the next few weeks, to launch into this series on 1 Corinthians. And if you notice, I titled it, No Perfect Church. No Perfect Church. And I did this intentionally because I want to call to our our minds again, this reality that we struggle with as Christians, that a lot of us come into the church as new believers and we come in on fire for God. We're we're pumped up and we're, we're energetic. But what happens is that we actually spend time in church and that zeal then sometimes gets diminished. We begin to see behind the curtain of church and it feels a little bit like the Wizard of Oz. Well, they pull back the curtain, and what is it? It's Just smoke and mirrors. And so this energy and this excitement and this enthusiasm then gets dulled a little bit, and we become discouraged or become disenfranchised. And what happens then is that we either forsake church altogether because we failed to find heaven, we failed to find that perfect place, that utopia, or we may not leave church altogether, but what, what happens is we become consumers of church. We become consumers of church then, where we bounce around from one place to the next until we find that one place that meets our expectations. Now, don't get me wrong. There are, there are times where it might be good and proper to leave church or to, to check our convictions. But I would argue that a lot of times church leaving and discouragement comes from people, including myself, who have a very unrealistic view of what the church is actually supposed to be. You've heard this statement before that if there ever existed a perfect church, what shouldn't you do? You shouldn't go there. Why? Because you'd mess it up. Because <laughs> I'd mess it up. If there existed a perfect church, don't go. Because in our arrival, it would immediately become imperfect. So, what happens then? What happens? What should we expect? We should expect a little bit of chaos. We should expect a little bit of mess. What happens when you put more sinners together in one room? Now you have sin squared, right? You have messiness squared. You have lives that are complicated now squared. And again, that's not to say the church shouldn't strive for purity. Of course it should. We take vows when we become members to strive for the purity and peace of the church. And yes, the church is the body of Christ, but it's the body of Christ this side of heaven, this side of our perfection and glorification. So because of that, it can be messy. And so I find, though, 1 Corinthians compelling because it will encourage us, not that misery loves company, but it will encourage us that there has never been a perfect church. Never been a perfect church. If you go all the way back to the beginning, but is what you basically do here with 1 Corinthians. You're a few decades removed from the ministry of Christ himself. If you go back to the very beginning, you still find it to be messy. And that's okay, because we often hear this sort of cliche statement, we've got to get back to the, the church of the Bible. We've got to get back to the New Testament church. Okay, fine, we will. Let's go back to the New Testament church. Let's go to 1 Corinthians and what do we find? We find a church that struggles with this. It struggles with division and cults of personality. It struggles with being wowed by charismatic leaders. It struggles with being seduced by worldly influence and culture. The church in Corinth struggles with using the church for one's own agenda. It struggled with sexual immorality, jealousy and competition, abuse of marriages, offending each other, abuse of Christian freedom, mistaking the proper roles of men and women in the church, not knowing the proper role of spiritual gifts, even getting drunk at communion. At communion. Thankfully, or maybe not, we use grape juice, okay? So there's no chance of you getting drunk this morning, all right, from communion. But that's what happened here, okay, in the church of Corinth. So it's a messy They even, towards the end, which we'll see in chapter 15, they misunderstand the resurrection and the importance of that. So again, it's a reminder not that we should just throw our hands up or or throw in the towel, but the church has always been complicated. And so again, before you walk out of here depressed or walk out of here saying, oh, the pastor just told us to give up. It doesn't matter. No, no. First, hear me out. Hear me out. Because what we'll find in Corinthians is the reinforcement that Christians aren't perfect, aren't perfect. Just forgiven. So let's dive in. So let's dive in for a moment. The first thing you need to understand is that 1 Corinthians is the first of uh, two right canonical letters, okay? two of Paul's letters to the church of Corinth in Scripture, but it's actually not the only letters that he wrote. They're not the only letters he wrote. Take a look real quick uh, in your Bible. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you look in 1 Corinthians 5, look at verse 9. We won't go into it in depth, but just look at verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he he goes on and on. I wrote to you in my letter. Okay? So Paul is referencing then another letter he wrote. An earlier letter. Now take your Bible and go to the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18. Look at verse 1 for a moment. Acts 18 verse 1. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names about your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, a name you should have heard a minute ago, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So after this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. So what's happening here is that apparently Paul ministers in Corinth. He ministers in Corinth for about a year and a half. And then he leaves Corinth, and he goes eventually to Ephesus, where he'll spend about three years. And at some point, though, what happens is Paul hears of what's happening in the church at Corinth, and he writes them a letter. He writes his first letter to them. But they misunderstand it, and they have questions of their own, and so they write back to him their own letter. To which, then, 1 Corinthians is the reply. And so in this letter, which we'll, we'll unpack for a number of weeks, we're going to see Paul get down to business with the church of Corinth and answer a lot of questions and concerns that might sound even relevant to us here in 2018, things that were amazed they were, still, they were struggling with even so early that we struggle with as well. So the question then for the rest of this morning is, well, what message then does Paul have for them that's also encouraging for us also. So go back then to 1 Corinthians chapter one. And I think Paul has several things to offer us this morning. And the first is this, if you're taking notes, the first is this. Our churches might not be perfect, our lives might not be perfect, but we belong to the perfect one. Our churches and our lives are imperfect, but we belong to the perfect one. Look again at verse two. The church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You see, the first thing we see here is that we do belong to a local church. We belong to a local church in a specific city. For us, it's Lake Worth, and specifically here at Lake Osborne. But each and every church locally, we find out, is a part of something bigger. It's a part of this worldwide edifice that God is building through the gospel. What does Paul say? You are saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's instructive for us. That's encouraging for us in a couple ways. The first is this, Sainthood is not earned. Sainthood is not earned. That word trips us up in the Bible all the time. Because when we hear saint, we think of stained glass, we think of someone with a halo, we think of, you know, just this perfect, reverential person walking around all the time. But what we hear from Paul is that sainthood is not achieved, it's not earned, it's simply gifted. It's given to us that that is our God-given identity for all of those who call this church their home, who call Christ Jesus Lord. You are a saint. You have been gifted sainthood, that you belong to the perfect and righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also means something else for us then. Because then sainthood is our primary identity, it's our primary identity, it then supersedes anything else. It means that our earthly cities, our earthly jobs, our earthly nationalities, they don't define us primarily. They're primarily defined as people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That yes, we, we, we have homes in this earthly city, but we belong to the city that is to come. That we're saints found in the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. And that would have been very, very um, needed for the Corinthians to hear. Because the, the original recipients of this letter found themselves in this very complicated place called Corinth. You see, Corinth was a Greek city that eventually becomes a Roman city as the empire sort of swallows it up. But you may know that the city of Corinth had this very intriguing location As the Greek peninsula sort of juts out into the Mediterranean, you have this narrow strip of land. This narrow strip of land. And it basically connects the eastern and the western Mediterranean. And right in the middle, you have the city of Corinth. And so Corinth was at the crossroads of trade and ideas and culture. In fact, one kind of cool little fact is that in order for ships to avoid that long and arduous journey underneath the peninsula as they travel to the Mediterranean, they would actually take the ships and put them on rollers, because the strip of land is about four miles wide, and they roll the ships over the city of Corinth, okay, before they had a canal as this way to sort of cut down the journey. But because of that, the people of Corinth <coughs> find themselves in this city where, where trade and commerce and ideas and religion are all coming together in this melting pot city. And so because of that then, there was temptation and there was vice. And there were all the things that are, that are at home in a city like that. It's not altogether different from even in today's world. Where coastal cities here in South Florida, coastal cities tend to be what? A bit more liberal, a bit more progressive. Okay. You often hear of you know the heart of America, the Bible Belt, places like that. Okay. Coastal cities, because of trade and business and all, commerce, they tend to be a little more liberal, a bit more progressive. You have access to vices and, and temptation and things like that because of your location. The city of Corinth would have been very, very similar. And so because of that, the Corinthian church struggled very much with kind of knowing where's our our primary allegiance? Where's my primary home? Is it here in this world as I'm being bombarded by temptation and all these kinds of things? Or is it in the city that is to come? And so Corinth was a very worldly church, a carnal church. And they had to be reminded like we do. That yes, we'll struggle, yes, we'll fall prey to temptation sometimes, but we ultimately belong to the city that is to come. That we've been given a greater identity, that nothing that South Florida can offer ultimately will satisfy us the way that we've already been satisfied in the gospel. That we're saints, that we're found in Christ Jesus. And so that is our greater identity. We're not perfect, but we belong to the perfect one. But then, secondly, what do we see here? Secondly, in this chapter, again, our churches are imperfect, our lives are imperfect, but we've been perfectly provided for. Look now at verse 4. What does Paul say? He gives thanks to God always because of the grace of God given to them. Look at verse 5. In every way, you were enriched in Jesus in all speech. And all knowledge, verse 7, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. For God is faithful, whom you were called in the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, Paul reminds him, and he reminds us, that we've been provided for perfectly. Perfectly. You might notice that he has this kind of you know, classic greeting. He always gives thanks for the people he's writing to. But then here, he gets a little more specific. It's not quite so generic. He says, but you've been provided for in a very specific way, a very specific way. That you've been enriched in all speech and all knowledge. All speech and all knowledge. You have to ask yourself, well, why would he say those things? I mean, if he's, if he's speaking kind of Christian language, why not say, you've been enriched in all mercy and all love, you've been enriched in all faith and all hope. Why does he say you've been enriched in all speech and all knowledge? The reason is because Paul understands that God knows exactly what we need in the exact context we find ourselves in. And again, going back to the original audience, What would they have struggled with? Well, in the city of Corinth, they struggled with being seduced by these traveling philosophers that would come in. Think about it for a second. What did I tell you about Corinth? Corinth is this major trade route. And so because of that, people want to go there. If you have a business, you want to be where the action is. You want to be in the hub, in the major cities. Think of like today, if a a band comes to town or a performing arts come to town, They don't go to, you know, the small towns. They go to the big cities where there's a bigger audience. They go to the stadiums, places like that. This was Corinth. And so you had, in this day and age, you had traveling philosophers who would come and they would try to wow people with their rhetoric. So think of like, you know, Plato, Aristotle, you know, those kinds of things, all right? Greek wisdom and philosophy. They would come to town and they would try to wow people with their speech with their knowledge, with their rhetoric, and they would try to garner for themselves followers. They're trying to garner for themselves allegiance. And so the people of Corinth then are tempted, again, to follow after these other things instead of their true master, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does Paul say? Paul says, no, 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 don't fall prey to that. You've been perfectly provided for. Everything that you're looking for in those traveling philosophers, you already have in the gospel. You already have it. You've been provided for with all speech and all knowledge. So he's taking the grace of God and making it very specific to their context. And the same thing is true for us. Paul wants us to see that we don't believe in this you know, watchmaker God who winds the world up, and then walks away from it. But we also don't believe in a watchmaker God who saved us, calls us to himself, gives us Christ Jesus, and then walks away and says, oh, the rest of your life, it's up to you. No. He's with us every step of the way. He continues to provide for us every step of the way, in every season. What does the Bible call Christ Jesus? He is Emmanuel. He is God with you. And so whatever context you find yourself in this morning, whatever struggle, whatever temptation, whatever need you might have, God is with you every step of the way. That's true personally. It's also true collectively here at the church. Whatever we need God to provide going forward, whatever struggle we have going forward, Emmanuel, God is with us. He is perfectly providing for us every step of the way. And so again, what is it for you? What is it for me? Because chances are, you're not being tempted uh, by a, a traveling philosopher who's going to come in you know, and start spewing Greek wisdom on the street corner, and you're going to follow him instead of following the Lord Jesus. Probably not going to happen. But what is it for you? Because if there's a similarity between us and Corinth, it's that we are also people who have allegiances that go to and fro. So, what is it for you that you're hoping someone or something will provide? What is it? Is it your career? Is it even your marriage? Is it your bank account? Your reputation? We all look to something to provide what we already have in the gospel. We already have all that we need. And that's not true just personally, again, but it's true collectively for us as a church. So again, we're not perfect. Our lives and churches are imperfect, but we've been perfectly provided for. We lack nothing if we're honest, because we have Jesus Christ. We have the gospel. But then thirdly, and finally, what does Paul also point out for us here in this first chapter? Again, our churches are imperfect, our lives are imperfect, but we're now called to strive for unity. We're called to strive for unity here on earth as we find that unity in heaven. We're called to to strive for unity here on earth in our earthly family here at the church as we see it for us in heaven. Look again at verse 9 and following. What does he say? God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you that you might be united in the same mind in the same judgment. And then he goes on to say, for I've gotten this report. I got this email from Chloe, okay? And I heard about all the divisions. I follow Paul. No, no, I follow Apollos. No, 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 I follow Peter. And Paul says, how can that be? How can that be? And the antidote to that, the the way we avoid that, is by reminding ourselves, again, exactly who we already belong to. What is Paul telling us here? He's saying, think of the goodness that's been given to your life. Where have you been placed? What company do you now find yourself in? He says, you find yourself in the fellowship of Jesus Christ, our Lord that you actually find yourself now in the company of the Trinity. Can you imagine that? What would your life be like if you actually believed that you found yourself accepted into the most prestigious circle of all time? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, you've been brought into the fellowship of the Lord, Jesus Christ. That you're not only a saint, but now you're a fully communing member of this new family that God's building. And he also says that we're the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is what? It's not divided. That's what Paul says. Just think about it. He says, the Lord, his physical body, has ascended to heaven. He now sits in the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, which we confessed just a minute ago. But Christ Jesus, who sits now in heaven, has left on earth a physical body to do his work now that he's gone. And that physical body is the church. It's the church. And he says, how can that body be divided if Christ's true body in heaven isn't divided? It must be unified. And so we always going to have the temptation to fracture ourselves amongst our different allegiances, preferences, and things like that. But the encouragement is that the very same thing happened even back then. Think about that. We're just a few decades removed from Christ, and they were already forgetting about Jesus and saying, no, I belong to Paul or Apollos or Peter. And Paul says, let me correct that for you just a minute. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Was I crucified for you? No. He says, think of the name that you bear you bear the name Christian. You literally have the name of Christ, Christian, stamped upon you. And if we take the time to remember that, then it has this way of sort of putting aside all of our differences. And it has this way of making us realize that everything that we tend to fracture over or divide over is secondary to the thing that unites us all. Christians found in Christ Jesus. Christians, not perfect, but forgiven. Christians now brought into this otherworldly family called the church. But Christians now who must be united as we go forward in mission and we extend that grace of the Lord Jesus to a world that so desperately needs it. So that's my prayer for you all, for me, for this church here at Lake Osborne. If you're looking for a perfect church, this isn't it. If you're looking for a perfect pastor, I'm not it. But we have that perfect one, the Lord Jesus, who has provided for us for so long, so faithfully, and he will continue to do so in the future as we take this good news to a world that so desperately needs it. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, how you have provided so richly for us personally, in our families, and here at Lake Osborne. And so, God, we take this church and we we set it, including ourselves on the altar, and we say, Lord, do with us what you will. Do with us that which is pleasing in your sight. Do with us that which would bring you glory and would bring those in, Lord, who would know you as Lord and Savior. And so God, we thank you so much for what you've done already these past few months, weeks, and now even these first few days, Lord, of a new relationship here. And so God, we pray that you would continue to knit our hearts together in love, that you would continue to give us grace as we get to know each other, that then you would also bind us together in mission that we would be unified in our one purpose which is to bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ so God I pray that you would even now begin to stir our hearts we each have unique gifts we're all equipped uh, uniquely we're all in unique social circles knowing people that only we know and so God I pray that you would use all those things for your good for your glory that you would use all those things Uh, to to see your gospel go forth in this community. So we thank you again for this time you've had in worship. Thank you for your word which speaks to us. We pray now that as we have a moment to enter into communion and to to once again receive those elements of our salvation, that you bless us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As we do have a moment now to share together the Lord's table and the Lord's meal, I invite the...